Merry New Year! Pack it up, pack it in, let me begin. We came to win, get on board, take a spin. Cause we won't slack up, better have a backup. Try to get fresh and the whole crew will act up. 23's at an end and it's ending with a trend. Don't fight the trend when the trend is your friend. Get up, stand up, come on, throw your hands up. Trapping those tracks, never gonna let up. We're looking to the future, taking clues from the past. Will this rally keep rolling? Is it really gonna last? Did we avoid a recession or is it lurking around the bend? Did we spend ourselves silly? Will we break, not bend? So many questions, so much to address. It's your 2020. 24 playbook on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and make it seven, seven straight weeks of gains for the major U.S. stock averages, the longest winning streak for the S&P 500 since 2017 and the Dow's longest since 2019. And we got what we thought we'd get from the Federal Reserve and a little bit more, another pause in rate hikes, which was expected, but also the possibility of three rate cuts in 2024. Talk about a dovish pivot, but it was one little three-letter word that really made investors happy. We will make decisions about the extent of any additional policy firming and how long policy will remain restrictive. Did you hear it? The word any. That's the first time the Fed has used that word since it began hiking rates in 2022. And investors took that to mean that we have absolutely reached the terminal rate for interest rates and they will be heading lower from here. How much lower? If you look at the Fed's dot plot, the most boring yet the most important chart in economics today, it shows the Fed funds rate at 4.6% at the end of next year. That's three quarters of a basis point lower than where it is today, or three cuts of a quarter point each by this time next year. That sent stocks flying, with the Dow adding 500 points last Wednesday. Bond yields tumbled, sending mortgage rates below 7% for the first time in many, many months. So let's get on the same page here, shall we? The Fed's going to cut rates at least least three times next year. Unemployment is at a healthy 3.7%. Gas prices are down more than 30% from a year ago. The S&P 500 is up 22% so far this year, and corporate profits are supposed to hit record highs on a nominal basis in 2024. Pretty good news all around, so what could go wrong? Well, we'll get into that with Liz Ann Saunders, the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab, in just a few minutes. But first, let's get into our big three for the week. Number one, what usually happens the year after a 20% plus gain for the stock market? Asking for a few friends. Well, our friend Ben Carlson of Ritholtz Wealth has crunched the numbers, and they are pretty good if you like positive trends. The following year after a year of 20% plus gains, the S&P 500 added gains 65% of the time, or 22 out of the 34 years that happened. The average return in that following year, 8.9%. Number two, does it matter if the following year is a presidential election year? Not really. According to Morgan Stanley, the stock market has been higher 19 out of the last 23 election years, or 83% of the time. Furthermore, the results are pretty close no matter which party wins the Oval Office. When a Democrat was in office and a Democrat was elected, the total return for the year averaged 11%, according to Morgan Stanley. When a Democrat was in office and a Republican was elected, the total return for the year averaged 12.9%. Pretty close. And number three, how are you feeling about all of this? Well, we just wrapped up our latest investment sentiment survey, and we are all in a much better mood. But that doesn't mean you're letting your guard down. While you are less worried about the stock market, you're still favoring money market funds over stocks and ETFs, just by a little bit, but you're still not ready to fully commit to equities. Why not? Well, you think it's getting a little bubbly out there, especially around AI stocks, mega cap tech, and crypto. It's hard to blame you given the 150% plus rise for Bitcoin and the 234% rise 
rise for NVIDIA so far this year. Your biggest worry is the upcoming presidential election, not for how it might impact the stock market, but because of the chaos that it's bound to bring with it. The war in the Middle East is second on your list of concerns, followed by inflation and a potential recession. While you're still favoring defensive securities like CDs and money markets, if you had an extra 10 grand, you'd buy stocks with it. Any regrets from this past year? Too few to mention. Nearly 40% of respondents say they have no investing regrets from this year. 24% say they wish they would have bought more stocks. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be the last full trading week of the year. Investors will be keeping a close eye on the last economic reports for the year, including the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation. That's due out this Friday, as well as reports on the housing market. We'll get the latest data on housing starts, homebuilder confidence, building permits, existing home sales, and new home sales for November. They should all show a slight uptick as mortgage rates have been easing off their highs, but next year should be a real reawakening for the U.S. housing market. We'll also get the final University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index for the year, and that should tell us what we already know. We don't feel great about the economy, but that hasn't stopped us from spending. We are professional spenders in this country, and we won't be denied. We have two of the busiest shopping days of the year coming this week, to wit, including Super Saturday on December 23rd and this Friday, December 22nd. As we get ready to turn the page on 2023 and get ready for whatever is lurking behind the doors of 2024, it's time to level set on where we are now so we know where we might be going. What's the realistic path for interest rates? Is the inflation story over? Are we rolling into a recession or already already in a rolling recession? What can we expect from the stock and bond markets given the year we've had? What should we be tuning into that's not getting enough attention? As REM would say, what's the frequency, Kenneth? It's time to tune into a 2024 forecast with one of our favorite investing strategists and fellow 80s rock enthusiast, Lizanne Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist for Charles Schwab and the co-host of the On Investing podcast. So good to have you back. Nice to be here. Thank you. You're a rocker. We all know that. You always lead your notes with a classic rock song in your brilliant annual outlooks. This year, you're putting in the fix with one thing leads to another. Ray tune and apropos, given the year we've had, let's break down some of the key questions you get at in your note. That recession question. I heard you wrote, we're in a kind of a rolling recession. Sound like we're going to go into one. Explain what you mean by rolling. So, and, and not everybody likes that term. I don't care. It's appropriate because it actually describes what has happened. If you, not that we all want to relive the last three and a half years, but if you go back to the stimulus era coming out of the lockdown phase, of the pandemic, that demand was all funneled into the good side of the economy. That's where the inflation problem started on the good side of the economy. Well, fast forward to the more recent period, many of those goods categories in inflation have gone from hyperinflation to disinflation to deflation. And the case of the economy, housing, housing related, manufacturing, a lot of consumer products that were big stay at home beneficiaries all went into recession type declines. You just had the offsetting strength on the services side because of the later pent up demand and the revenge spending. And Services is a larger employer. That helps to explain why the labor market has been kept afloat. And inherently, the services-oriented inflation components just tend to be a little bit stickier. So that's just the cycle we've been in. So to me, best case scenario, looking ahead, is not really soft landing because that ship sailed for many of those aforementioned segments. It's that maybe you we've got some stability and or recovery in those areas if and when 
the services side of the economy has its turn to uh, to slug. Right. And so we really haven't necessarily felt it at the same time right. across all sectors. And we all know, and you cite Milton Friedman on the lag that happens yeah. with these interest rate hikes. And we've had a lot. We haven't had one for several meetings in a row now. And now there's talk about potential cuts earlier next year. We'll get to that in a second. But you cite Milton saying monetary changes have their effect only after a considerable lag and over a long period. And that lag is variable. So where have we not seen the lag from those interest rate hikes yet? I take it in three different ways in the report. Um, looking at the decline in the LEI, the leading economic index. As we're talking right now, it's 19 consecutive months of decline. And the amount of decline is consistent wholly with recessions historically. But there's a lot of variability in terms of both the span from a peak in the leading indicators to when a recession starts from as little as only three months to as many as 21 months. So we're still in that historical window. So we've not passed the expiration date. A lot of variability in terms of how the S&P performed around that. Same thing with the inversion of the yield curve, where we're 12 months now uh, past the point of inversion. We've got as long as 23 months in terms of when a recession has come. So we're kind of right in the middle of that historic range. And then you've got things like the, the final rate hike, which we do think was probably in July. But we don't know, regardless of what the market thinks, when they'll actually leave pause mode and actually pivot to rate cuts. But there's a lot of variability around the span of time historically. So it's one of the reasons why one overarching theme in the report and an old phrase that I mentioned, I think, three times was... Um, analysis of an average can lead to average analysis, especially when you have a small sample size and a really wide, wide range of outcomes. Right. There is not another economic period in history like the one of the past few years. There are some that look kind of similar. And I know you and Kathy Jones talk about that on your pod, yep. looking at back in the 60s for that. What was similar back then? And what is so very different today besides the fact that productivity is different, technology is different, bigger labor force, bigger everything? Yeah, so the background conditions are are not very similar, but there were some similarities in the late 1960s. It was an actual soft landing that was managed uh, in that 1967 uh, time period, or some would just say it was a, a pause before we had you know the big town turn uh, in 1969. But the nature of why inflation was accelerating the lead-in to, unfortunately, what were the triple mistakes basically made under the Arthur Burns Fed or tightening policy, seeing inflation come down, in hindsight, prematurely hanging the victory banner, easing monetary policy, only to see inflation reignite. So a lot of the economic conditions today look similar to the late 60s. I think what Powell is trying to do is avoid the mistakes that turned the 70s into the 70s as we know it, of not having the fits and starts of monetary policy here. Liz, let's go inside the stock market. We're actually inside the New York Stock Exchange right now. So if you hear the bells and whistles, folks, that is your money at work. So let's go inside and look for clues for next year, following a pretty strong year, but a year with kind of bad breath, as you write. We are waiting for bated breath here. Better performance from the other 493-odd stocks in the S&P 500. Are we going to see that? We have started to see it. Everybody was assessing the one-year point in mid-October off the October, I guess it was 12th, 2022 low for the S&P 500. And there was a lot of bad breath there. And you had the S&P 
up 19% at that point, which is actually in and of itself a fairly anemic percentage increase off of if it's a major market low relative to past major market lows, but you had very little participation by small caps. In every one-year move off a low in the history, those were typically ripping. You had negative performance for the banks. Those were typically ripping. So there was a lot that was lacking. With the concentration was a real problem, but since that point, really concentrated since the beginning of November, you have seen a significant broadening out over the past month plus S&P equal weight, Russell 2000, outperforming the cap-weighted S&P. So I think we've, we're starting to get this sort of stealthy rotation that is helping to ease some of those concentration excesses, but doing it via rotation as opposed to, to the bottom falling out. So how much of that is sort of a, a letting out of the air of those bond yields a little bit, giving a little bit more breathing room? to stocks that were not part of the MAG-7, that were not like kind of safety stocks for a lot and, of people. And, you know, the valuation richness was a main focus, not to mention the fact that there's been a lot of inflows into active money managers. And they, by nature of being active, need to look for opportunities. They can't have the same kind of concentration like the MAG-7. So I think there's there's been money that's been hitching to find opportunities outside of just, you know, seven names. And I think you're you're seeing that. Now, there's also been some low quality characteristics in some of the areas that have done well. So to use trader lingo, I would fade the low quality stuff that's doing well and lean into higher quality if you're going to go down the, the cap spectrum. And you said uh, just about a year ago, that it's the companies with strong balance sheets. It's the companies that have really good fundamentals right now. Fundamentals matter. That mattered a year ago. It matters now. Now that we're getting a little bit of normalization right. and stabilization. So what are the key metrics to watch? What fundamentals are the most important in your mind for investors to keep an eye on when they're looking company to company or even sector to sector? So we have been really factor focused and think taking a factor based approach, which is just another word for characteristic is makes much more sense than a sector-based approach. So we all have talked a lot about the concentration problem at the index level. Magnificent 7 representing 30% of the uh, of the index on a cap-weighted basis. But a lot of people don't realize that the concentration problem exists in all 11 sectors too. In fact, I think it's the communication services sector that the top 10 names represent 96 or 98% of the index. So the concentration problem is not just at the index level. And within any sector, you're going to have great fundamental companies and crappy fundamental companies. And the nice thing about screening for investing based on factors, certain characteristics, is you're getting that high quality without having to worry about a monolithic sector call. Because even within a sector like tech, that's you know, the sector everybody loves to love, there are really high quality uh, stocks, really low quality. In fact, a lot of people have been conflating size and performance. I, I saw a headline the other day that said it was about the Magnificent Seven. You know, the seven best performers in the S&P. And I thought, they're the seven largest stocks. You have to, I think, now go down somewhere close to the top 50 in terms of year-to-date performance to incorporate all seven of the Magnificent Seven. In addition, even though the number one best performer in the S&P year to date, which is NVIDIA, number two, I think is Meta there, you know, you've got that tech waiting there, but the worst performing 
two stocks in the S&P 500 are also tech stocks. So I, I just think this is not the kind of environment for monolithic sector costs. You also note that the low interest ship has sailed, as you point out, but a lot of companies are in this tight position of financing their debt at pretty high rates. So how will that impact companies' margins and their profitability? What does that translate to? It depends on the company. Right. I, I think this is going to be a much tougher environment, even if yields which have come down don't move back up again for those lower quality companies, the so-called zombie companies that don't have sufficient cash flow, pay interest on debt and have that roll over risk and, and, and higher interest costs. And I think many of those companies are going to be in a world of hurt. There are plenty of well-capitalized companies with strong balance sheets, even many that actually have a fairly high debt load, but they did it, you know, at a time when interest rates were low, when they could afford to take advantage of low interest rates, borrow money, whether it was to buy back stock or pay dividends. They're not at risk at not being able to roll over. They have access to capital. They have plenty of cash flow to cover their interest expense. So I think it's that interest expense factor in particular that's going to be kind of a differentiator of where you're going to be on the uh, 2024 spectrum in terms of performance. A lot of people make a big deal about money on the sidelines or five and a half trillion in money markets. But I've heard you say that's maybe not the same money that usually pours back into the equity market. It's Tell actually us. more than six, I think it's $6.3 trillion. We're so. every day. So what is that? Whose money is that? Well, it's not as if it's retail investor money that's put some of it is. over there. Well, whose money is in it? many cases, it's individuals that have had a, a yield or income orientation. They were just forced into other markets. They have to take more risk in the ZERP environment of zero interest rates in order to get that yield. Now you've got the safety and the, the limited risk. And I don't know that that's all so-called cash on the sidelines that is just itching to go into riskier asset classes. I think some of that money, I don't know what share of it, probably is pretty sticky. It's people that... And in addition, when we talk about the, the amount of money in money markets, the $6.3 trillion, and that's a record high, it's nowhere near a record high as a share of total capitalization of the equity market. So if you want to do the comp of if that money flows in, you know, it's a record, so it's going to be this power driver for the equity market. But relative to overall equity market cap, that's grown at a much faster pace. So you're nowhere near a record in terms of that ratio. Right. On a nominal basis, maybe. But when you look at right. the overall Level size, basis, yes, but, but relative, it matters. Right. And yep. as the market approaches, again, another record high. That's even that's an even bigger market. Yep. So let's go down the scale a little bit. Small caps typically vulnerable to economic slowdowns and recessions. But why might 2024 actually present a good opportunity for smaller companies if they are solid and have good quality balance? And that's the big if, which is one of the reasons why I, I, I'm not a big believer in giving tips in the traditional sense. I'm not going to give stock tips because that's not what I do. But one, maybe not tip a piece of advice or maybe a, a nugget of education is as an index, the Russell 2000 is used mostly as the small cap benchmark. But S&P 600 is also a fairly well-known small cap index. It's just not used as a benchmark for institutions as much. And that's why there tends to be more focused on the Russell 2000. The Russell 2000, I think, doesn't have 2,000 stocks. I think it's like 1,800 and change. But there's no profitability filter that Russell uses. So right now, 
31% of the Russell 2000 are zombie companies, meaning they don't have the cash flow to pay interest on their debt. I think it's close to 40% that are not profitable. Conversely, if you look at the S&P 600, which does have a profitability filter, so you don't have, yeah, maybe there are some zombies in there, but it's, it's a fairly small share. And as a result, the valuation differential is significant. It's about 10 multiple points because the denominator in the case of the S&P 600 is a much bigger number because you've got profitable uh, companies in there. So it's not a recommendation to index to one versus another. It's just a lot of people look at the index as a sort of a source for ideas to do their screening. I'm saying if you want to stay up in quality, basket of stocks that S&P puts together that are small caps is inherently a healthier source for ideas. And you could do that up and down up and down the sides. Down the you want good quality. Spectrum across sectors, right. you can you can find opportunities. And by the way, factor-based performance is much more consistent than sector-based uh, performance. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. Okay, so for the average retail investor, the four hundred one k investor, the IRA investor, they've been indexing for a long time. In a lot of cases, it's worked. Been a couple of rough years. What's your advice for twenty twenty four and beyond? Is this as you say, maybe it's a little bit more of an active environment, but what would you say to folks who are just like, I just want to put my money to work there, in place I trust? There are plenty of investors that are perfectly happy indexing to the S&P. You just have to understand that it can go in the opposite direction. There's been so much focus on the Magnificent 7, and why wouldn't I want to have that much exposure be indexed to the S&P? Look how well it's done. Yes, it's concentrated, but getting the upside by the index performance. But 2022 was the complete opposite. 2022, those stocks got absolutely hammered relative to the S&P. So they were the big drags. You just have to be mindful of the concentration problem. I think most people, at least historically, one of the appeals of taking a passive approach, taking an index approach, is the inherent diversification it offers. You don't really get that so much right now. In fact, what's kind of ironic is if Standard & Poor's decided to create the S&P 500 today, and somebody gave them the breakdown as it exists now, it wouldn't pass muster in terms of securities laws and regulations. Mutual funds can't own that. In fact, well, here's another interesting one. When we talk about factors and not sectors, a lot of people say, well, but if there is a, a sector that you're favorable towards, we just buy one of the spider you know, sector ETFs. They cap the weight of any individual stock. So in the case of consumer discretionary right now, Amazon is actually 32% of the consumer discretionary sector, but S&P doesn't allow any stock to be more than 24%. So there's just the, all this funky stuff that has happened given the concentration, but I think investors just need to be mindful of the lack of diversification they're getting by indexing to this big well-known benchmark that is the S&P. As they say, know what you own. Okay, let's go out on this. You know, we're a site filter on our investing terms. I always ask you for your favorite. What's your favorite right now? What's the most important investing term you can think of right now that investors should know? It's an old school term and it's an acronym. Uh, GARP, growth at a reasonable price. And when I think about the, the factors that we're emphasizing right now with still quality, but the necessity we think of having a little bit of a valuation kicker in there given you know rich valuations it, it in my head it's like well it's kind of old school you know garb for a reasonable price even though 
we and lots of other people talk now more with that factor language and with quality as a descriptor. A great term. We love that term. And we love your insights, folks. Check out Liz's insights and her team's insights. We'll put those in the show notes, but also the On Investing podcast you do with Kathy Jones. It's so wonderful. I learned so much from that. Such a good friend to Investopedia. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank Thanks for having me. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Chris, Kringle that is. He's pretty busy this time of year, but he wanted to recommend the Santa Claus rally. And who are we to say no to that? According to our favorite website, the term Santa Claus rally was actually coined by Yale Hirsch, the founder of the Stock Traders Almanac back in 1972. We talked to his son Jeff just a few weeks ago on the Express. Well, according to Yale, the Santa Claus rally is the time frame of the final five trading days of the year and the first two trading days of the following year when stocks tend to rally most of the time. The Stock Traders Almanac compiled data during the 73 years from 1950 through 2022, and it showed that a Santa Claus rally occurred 58 times, or roughly 80% of the time. The S&P 500 was up 1.4% during those periods. There's a lot of reasons stocks tend to rally during this condensed period of time at the end of the year, including year-end tax considerations, holiday bonuses being put to work in the market, less institutional trading, which means retail traders like us are a little bit more aggressive, and portfolio dressing by some investors who may have missed gains earlier in the year. Great suggestion, Chris. We'll leave a pair of Investopedia's finest socks out for you next to the milk and the cookies. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and thanks for riding the Express throughout the year. We are so grateful to you for listening, sending in comments, and recommending the Express to your friends and family. Special thanks also to Liz Ann Saunders for climbing back aboard the Express. We'll link to her 2024 outlook and her terrific podcast on investing with Kathy Jones of Schwab. You'll find those in the show notes along with all the reports we cited on this week's episode and our own outlook for 2024. The Express is pulling in for a little station break next week, but we'll be back on the tracks January 2nd. Have a healthy and happy holiday season and a happy new year, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.